Welcome to the drdavidmarlin.com Stable Science Podcast. I'm Dr. David Marlin, and along with a great team of experts, I'm helping horse owners and riders achieve optimal performance for their much-loved horses. In these podcasts, we will discuss science-led research, technology, information, and advice to help you care for your horses so they may live healthier, happier, and longer lives. To support the podcast and all our research and science for horses, go to our website, www.drdavidmarlin.com, and to learn more about what we do and the hot topics under discussion, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to a new podcast for the Dr. David Marlin group. Um, I'm very lucky today to have a special guest to talk to. I have with me today Dr. Heather Cameron Whitock, who is a senior lecturer and researcher in veterinary medicine at the University of Central Lancashire. Heather has done three significant studies into horse safety um, in eventing and has done lots of research and studies around the subject. Um, we've asked everyone today to talk to us a little bit about these studies so that we can learn more about the safety for our horses. Um, welcome, Heather. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> you are very welcome. So, Heather, could you start by just giving us a little bit of background on yourself um, and tell our audience um, what you have done? Yeah, um, so my background is that I was, I'm sure this is a common uh, phrase heard around this community, but I loved ponies from a young age. Um, I lived on a farm. We didn't have any horses or ponies ourselves, but the farm that we lived on did and our neighbours did. So I used to go down and ride other people's ponies and I was just obsessed. Um, and then eventually when I was a bit older, I got, um, I was very lucky to get my own horse um, from my auntie. And um, yeah, I went to pony club and I fell off every time. <laughs> 
until we we built up a partnership and then we eventually um did a lot of like pony club eventing and things like that and that was where my love of eventing first came from um i then went on to work for um professional event riders in my sort of late teens and early 20s um so i was helping produce young horses um for affiliated competition and obviously grooming at competitions as well for them um and competing myself so um i've competed a lot of little uh, connemara ponies um and yeah that's where the true love of the sport came from i was completely immersed in it i then went to study equine science at university and for my final year uh, research project i obviously wanted to do something in eventing and i can't remember how i came to the, the study but I decided I wanted to look at horse falls so I did a little study on horse falls for my undergraduate dissertation um, and then I submitted my work I think a year later to a conference um, the International Society for Equitation Science and I was delighted to get in um, as a presentation so I went over to Denmark and presented there the massive room full of people I was absolutely terrified <laughs> Um, but it was really well received and it got a little bit of coverage in the media as well, in the equine media, like magazines and things. So that was obviously really exciting. Um, and yeah, I then went off in sort of a totally um, unrelated field of work, sort of corporate, um, but I wasn't that happy there. So after a couple of years, um, I was really lucky to be offered a funded PhD by Myersco College, where I'd done my undergraduate research and uh, that PhD was to do more work on horse falls so um, some of the work that we've published as as a result of that PhD so yeah the my sort of all of my research has is rooted in you know childhood passion um, and being yeah so heavily involved in in that sport I'm not really uh, so involved now with the practical side of horses. I don't have as much time, um, but I'm still loving doing the research and getting to go out to events and work with riders and people within the sport. It, I always think it's fantastic to hear that people who have a genuine love for the sport are the ones using their science and uh, research knowledge to actually help further the sport as it develops and you to look at it from a safety perspective for for the animals i think is um admirable thank you so you've done three studies the first one was about risk factors of falling could you tell us a little bit about that please yeah so that was the first sort of large scale study in eventing uh, we looked at horse falls and unseated riders and um, it was actually led by my colleague ewan who i do a lot of work with in this um, topic and also tim parkin um, and yeah, we, we looked at the FEI database, um, so it was funded by the, the veterinary committee of the FEI. Um, um, yeah, it was just, a, I guess at that stage, it was sort of the first look at a big set of data and trying to find what we call factors associated with a certain outcome. So we're trying to find factors associated with horse falls. You'll sometimes hear, we say in research, um, you know, you shouldn't confuse correlation with causation um, which is important but also there are some things that we can't test in a laboratory setting we can't um you know force a horse to fall and study what's associated with that so for this type of work where we need to get our information from is what we call cohort studies so we want the sort of longitudinal multi-year 
um, data set. So that's what the that first FEI one, um, that was the sort of first of its kind. Um, and we found a lot of different factors um, associated with horse falls. And we actually, a lot of the factors we found actually were sort of in agreement with previous smaller studies that had been done and some non-scientific literature, like there was an audit done by the FEI. Um, and we sort of, yeah, I guess we sort of uh, supported those findings, which was really important as well as part of um, this sort of work. It's You don't just want to rely on one singular study, you want to rely on a whole body of work. And what was it that you were looking at? Was it the actual data that the FBI had already collected and therefore provided you? Yeah, so it's things like the horse's age, rider's age, um, horse sex, rider gender, uh, what level they're competing at, their competition history, how many times they've competed. Um, yeah, all, all basically everything that they had, we included in our analysis. And what we do is we put everything in the database into an analysis, into like a big model, essentially. And then once we've done our analysis, it sort of spits out a final, what we call final model. And in that final model will only be factors in there that are found to have some effect on the risk of a horse fall. Um, so for example, um, you know, like uh, horse sex might not have been in the final model, but rider gender was. So it spits mm. out what isn't important and what isn't associated and it retains everything that is. The other important thing about this uh, sort of work, I'm trying not to get too technical, but when you have something in a model um, and it has multiple factors, so let's say it's got rider gender, it's got the competition level, it's got the age of the horse, what it's doing is considering all those factors together and how they interact with each other, which is so important because if we just look at one variable at a time, so if we just say, right, is rider gender associated with horse falls and we just look at that on its own, that isn't considering all the multiple other factors that are involved in that situation. And these big models that we build with these cohort data sets do that, which is so important um, for this kind of work. Okay, so for me, <laughs> layman's terms, it's not just a matter of if you're a boy or a girl, but if you're a girl riding a brown horse that's five years old and has only competed once before, that's the yeah, the output. Yeah, yeah, it builds up a certain level of risk. Yeah, so it's it's never just you know one singular factor, and you know we've mm. said this since we started this work, and we still say it to this day. We're never going to find something in this data that's going to eliminate horse falls. Probably the only way we could do that is to say, remove the jumps, <laughs> which obviously we're not going to do. Um, yeah. What we're trying to do is find what we call, you know, if we look at human sport, they use this term marginal gains to try and find, yeah. um, it was, you know, coined by Sir Dave Brailsford for British Cycling. Um, and it's about finding these little seconds of improvement that's what we're trying to do with horse falls. We're trying to find these little factors that we can just improve, let's say, and it reduces the horse fall risk over a whole cohort by 1%. That could be one rider or one horse without a fracture or, a, you know, um, being paralyzed with some, some form of injury. And um, mm. that's what we're trying to do, just find these lots of little factors that we can make small improvements. And it's really important to us as well to maintain the challenge of the sport we don't want to come in and you know make the sport something it's not um we want it to get safer for both horses and riders we want that challenge to be maintained as well
Yeah, so we found a number of factors, um, as we usually do with these types of studies. Some of the like sort of most important ones, um, the most dominant factor. So it had what we call the largest effect size, which essentially means it has the biggest effect on the outcome, which is the horse fall. And um, what's the level of competition? Um, and again, I'm sure you know no one would be surprised to hear that. Um, that the higher levels of competition carry higher risk, especially FEI level, because you're looking at the difference between one star and four star or five star. Um, and that is quite a big uh, jump in difficulty level. And, you know, the reasons for that are going to be, um, you know, there's going to be many. For example, we know that there's more fences. We know that the courses are longer, that they have to travel faster. The fences are bigger, they're wider, they're more technical. So that makes sense to us that that's in there. Um, and I guess we it's difficult for us to, as researchers, to sort of take anything from that uh, as it encompasses so many different things, the level. Um, the main thing that we say when we see that sort of thing is that the governing bodies are doing right in that they continuously uh, monitor and alter the minimum eligibility requirements, which is that minimum you know, achievement to step up to the next level. And we just reiterate that that needs to continue and um, because the risk increases so much at those higher levels. The other type of thing we found um, was, for example, horses that had had a horse fall before um, were more likely to fall again. Um, it's an interesting one to unpack that one. Um, yeah. You know, I guess that, that could be due to so many different reasons. Um, it could be that you know that horse is maybe just not as cognitively sharp let's say as some others and they're more prone to hitting the fence they might not be as physically strong um yeah what we always say is that with this sort of work we're using these big data sets and we're we're finding these variables it's our job to share the variables and say this is what we found and we know this to be a fact it's based on evidence but we can't actually explain why that would require further study. So we can only, um, you know, assume or use knowledge from other studies to help us understand that. One of the other things that we found that was interesting and has actually been supported by not only previous studies, but also further work that we've done since was that um, male riders are more likely to fall than female riders. Um, and we've we've talked about this in, in some of the studies and it could be due to, again, multiple different reasons but there's a couple of different theories so one is that um you know in a standard um cohort of um, people males are more likely to score higher in something we call self-efficacy which is your belief in yourself to cope with a specific situation so it's different mm -hmm. than confidence which is more general self-efficacy is like you know for example i'm driving my car up to this tight corner and I believe I have the skill to take this tight corner at 50 miles an hour. Whereas if you had lower self-efficacy, you're more likely to slow down because you don't have that belief in yourself to, to, cope, to have the skill to cope with that situation. So you could translate that, and it has been looked at in other high-risk sports, for example, like rock climbing. And it could mean that those people, so in this circumstance, it's males, are more likely to take risks. So they're more prone to risk-taking behaviour, which could then, of course, um, mean they're more prone to having falls. The other, um, one of the other sort of um, theories is that there's some 
very preliminary and early work um, that definitely needs more done. But there is some early work on um, weight on horses and how that affects the kinematics of the chomp. So more weight has been found in previous studies. Um, so if you've got more weight on the horse, they will take off closer to the fence. And if they take off closer to the fence, they're more likely to hit the fence with their limbs. And we know that if they hit the fence with their limbs, that's associated with falling. Um, and again, if we look at a typical population of people, previous studies show that typically males will weigh more than females. They have higher muscle mass, for example, they're typically taller. And um, so that's another theory. Um, but yeah, again, you know, we don't ultimately we don't know firmly why that's there, but it has come up in several different studies now. That is an interesting other... one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Studies on, um, I guess, rider compatibility with their horse due to weight. I know that's a very hot topic at the moment that a lot of our yeah. colleagues are uh, working on. Yeah, and I guess there's always that question, isn't there, of is it weight or is it how we carry the weight? So is it our balance associated with the weight, um, for example, which could change how it feels to the horse, couldn't it? Absolutely, um, yeah. The other interesting thing to note about this study is that we found that combinations who had a dressage score of more than 50 penalties, so that would be like a score of 50% in British dressage or a dressage competition, so 50 penalties, um, they were slightly more likely to fall. So this didn't have a big effect size, but it was what we call significant in the model, which means statistically it's meaningful, um, mm. but it, it didn't have a huge effect. So that was the first time that we sort of noticed this association with dressage penalties um, mm. and that was over 50 penalties and um, I'm sure we'll talk about it but we go into that more in our latest study. Brilliant and um, so can you then tell us um, what was your overall feelings about this study? Did Was you sort of excited and pleased with the results? I'm always interested to hear how re researchers review the work that they've just done. Yeah, I think we were really excited. I think we were more excited about the fact that it was the first like largest study, um, large scale study to look specifically at what we call rider and horse related um, factors for horse falls. So um, mm. things like their gender and sex and things like that. Um, so we're excited about that, I guess, because this was the first study, um, the first large scale study, we were conservative about the findings because it's the first large-scale study so you don't want to go out and change the world with those results mm. because we need more basically you need to do more work to support the findings of that before you can go out into industry and make firm recommendations so it was exciting in the start in the sense that it was a start of something um, rather than something final and I guess the fact that the FEI were backing you, they were giving you the data, they were asking you to look into it, that's always, um, I think, a very positive forward motion for our sport as a whole, isn't it? So you must have felt the responsibility of that, knowing that um, they, were, they were looking at what you were doing and backing the direction you were taking the research. Yeah, of course. And we also, you know, it's a privilege that we got to work on the FEI data, but it's also so vital from a, a sort of you know a scientist's perspective but also just my own personal perspective because this is proper evidence-based work 
it goes through, you know, to get to the stage where we have this publication, it's it's done by three different academics on these papers we've talked about. And um, we're all working together and we've all got different levels of experience and expertise and we're bouncing those off each other in quite a sort of critical sense. You're quite critical mm. when you work with academics. Um, but then once you've done that, you then submit it to a journal and that gets sent out to other experts in the field and they are then critical of it. And um, so the sort of the the how meaningful this is for the sport is like for me, like it's huge because it's it's this is proper evidence. This is evidence based and um, practice or it's the start of it. Brilliant. And then this so this led to your second study um, the one about the fence level um, um, risk. Can you just tell us a little bit about that one, please? Yeah, so the fence level, we looked at factors associated with fences. So that might be fence type. It might be where they're situated on course, where they're situated on land. So key findings from this one were, we found a higher risk of horse falls associated with fences sited downhill, for example, um, fences with a landing in water, um, as well as certain fence types. So um, one of the sort of riskiest fence types that we found from that study was a corner fence. Now, you know, when we when we create these models, um, they're so important because if we were to just test one variable against another, um, we're looking at something very singularly when in reality, like a horse fall is affected by so many different factors. I mean, factors that we don't, we can't even include in our models. So it's vital that we put everything in that we've got so that you've got that whole view. Um, so for example, we look at that final model and um, we could use that information to perhaps influence course design. And an example of what we might say is, okay, so we know that corner fences have quite a high risk. We know that fences sighted later on in the course have a high risk. And we know that fences landing in water have a high risk. So we would probably suggest not putting a corner fence near water at the end of the course, because that's what the model does. It considers all variables. And if you, the ones that we find in the final model, which is essentially the ones that we find that are associated with risk, um, if you stack them up, you're gonna increase that risk. So it's about using that information to sort of build strategy into uh, course design. So it's never gonna be, okay, we found that corner fences are high risk, so let's just get rid of them. That's not gonna be viable for the sport's continuation. We don't wanna change the challenge. We just want to make little tweaks and changes that might make it a little bit safer for those involved. Mm, understood. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I suppose some of the factors you probably couldn't know, correct me if I'm wrong, might be what the weather was like on that day, oh, yeah. whether yeah, it ground, was wet this... or hot, yeah. ground. Where when you competed in the season, was it an early competition or a later seasonal competition? So yeah, you can only even things like the how is the rider and horse feeling that day. You know, we yeah. don't we don't know that. The the beauty of these types of studies that we do is they have so many factors in them. So they have that as their strength compared to a lot of other studies, but they're still missing so much, um, mm. which is is difficult. They're actually um my director of studies for my PhD, uh, Professor Sarah Jane Hobbs, she um, and a team are currently working on the ground conditions. Um, and there's been some feature of that in Halls and Hound that people might have seen. They're te- using, you know, scientific method to assess the ground conditions on cross country. And that sort of work is vital because that information has been missing from these big studies previously because we've not had an effective way to measure it. So there's lots mm. of work going on with other teams as well that are yeah, vital to work towards this common goal. Oh, fantastic. And then um, quite recently you did a study that I know caused them, a, there was, we'll come on to it, but I know the findings found a little bit of stir with the general eventing public, but please do tell us about the first study with the, with the uh, impact of dressage penalties, because I know that's something that our audience may have already heard about. Yeah, so the third study was, uh, so the studies that we've talked about so far are on FEI data. The first yeah. study is unique in that it was looking at British eventing data. Now, some and was think this that's backed a... by British eventing? Did they? They Yeah, so they, I was given the data by British eventing. I um, approached them. Um, I actually spoke to them when I was doing my little undergraduate project as well. I only got that data from the public domain, but I obviously spoke to them about and the work and actually I was I was really lucky to be um, invited out to present my work to the FEI as a guest of British eventing as a oh, result fantastic. of that undergraduate dissertation so I presented that first little study to them so they sort of knew about my work from that point and then when I went on the PhD journey and um, they were aware of that too and actually nearing the end of my PhD again I went out to the FEI and I presented my findings and um, so it was great to have that support from British Eventing, they've been really um, proactive and involved and helpful in all the work I've done so far, and which is, you know, that's what we want to see, don't we, from our governing bodies that, um, and I know as well that they don't, they're not just helping me or assisting me or supporting me, I know of other studies that they're involved in and they've supported with, um, so yeah, British Eventing are really on it with that. Um, so yeah, they, they gave me the um, data. Obviously, you have to, you know, you can't just go and ask for the data and they hand it to you. You have to go through lots of legal processes of confidentiality and GDPR and um, non-disclosure agreements, that sort of thing. Um, and then, yeah, I spent my PhD analysing that data. Um, I also did other studies, but I'll skip those for now. and We can maybe come back to them. Um, but the largest one was this big data analysis. And... Yeah, the unique thing about this is it only included British data, so we could consider that it's a little bit limited because the FEI uh, data sets are global. They are from FEI competitions all over the world. But the beauty in the British um, data set is that it's national level, so it encompasses lower levels than the FEI data does. 
and it also is huge in comparison to the FAI data because obviously that's international level competition and it's not as um you know it's not as common I guess as people competing at a lower national level um so this was you know three times the size of the FEI data set and they were already massive it's just the British one was enormous I mean I think we ended up with 750,000 rows of data for that study so it was wow it was really big um and yeah, was, yeah it was a huge stretch you need a very powerful <laughs> computer to handle that sort of data um so yeah that um yeah, we so we basically did the same thing as what we did with the FEI one. So all of the same principles, similar sort of variables. What we call a variable is like rider gender, the horse breed, horse height level. That's our variable. So all of those go in. We run this model and it retains in it what is found to be associated. Um, so we found similar. We sort of supported everything we found in the FEI data set. The level of competition is the biggest most important factor in terms of risk of horse falls the higher level of competition you're going to get more horse falls and um, and yeah as i said before it's difficult to come up with any sort of recommendations around that because that is affected by so many variables like speed how many fences the distance that they travel over cross country and the complexity all of those things other than the fact that the governing bodies you know need to continue continue monitoring these minimum eligibility requirements and making sure that they're up to standard so we don't have any high risk individuals stepping up to a level that they're not ready for perhaps um so yeah we found the the male rider thing came up again um in that study um, and that's where actually in that paper we do talk through that um self-efficacy if anyone's interested in reading that, that paper is open access so anyone can can access it and read it in the discussion some of that wider thought around why these things were found um but yeah the other key thing that we found was this dressage penalty risk so it came up again um in support of that first fei study so at this stage because it come up again we looked into it a little bit further we gave it a bit more attention and we thought okay where is the boundary at what point in the dressage penalty score does it is there sort of a sudden jump in risk? Because when we'd done the FEI study, we hadn't done that. We just looked very generally, I guess, sort of linearly. And we'd seen like, okay, the, the worst half are more at risk than the bottom half. Whereas in this study, we realized that, you know, to go out into industry with this information, we're not going to go out and say, right, you need to remove the bottom half of dressage competitors and not let them go cross country. That's not viable or reasonable. Um, and also the, the the sort of association in that initial model was quite small. So it was important, but we hadn't found like this big jump in risk. So in this British study, we looked at this in detail and we staged it. We looked at risk um, with an increase of every 10 penalties. And we found that the difference between people who had less than 70 penalties and people who had more than 70 penalties the people that had more than 70 penalties were almost four times as likely to have a horse fall. And that is wow. a huge jump. Like usually we'd see like a small difference. This was massive for a singular variable for one thing, dressage penalties alone. Um, that's a big jump in risk. So I guess that and a combination of 
thinking about how do we apply this to real life? How is this going to work in reality? It's really important that we follow scientific principle and methodology, but there's no point in doing that if the things that we come up with afterwards are just not applicable in reality. We have to come mm. up with things that can actually be put in place in the sport. So that made our decision that, okay, we, we think we should recommend that people that get more than 70 penalties, so that's equivalent of getting 30% in a dressage test. It's the equivalent of scoring three out of 10 on average for every movement. Um, those individuals clearly are at a severely higher risk and we suggest they should perhaps be, you know, not be allowed to progress if that is the case. And we already have a penalty system like that in place in the show jumping, where if you yeah. get a certain amount of penalties, you are not allowed to progress to cross country and that's there for safety. Um, and I think one thing that is perhaps missed in some of the the uh, industry commentary around it on media was that it was 70 penalties um, and maybe some of the headlines used by you know the media outlets were a bit um, misleading. Um, I can imagine yeah. <laughs> a lot of people that I've some people I've spoke to for example verbally and uh, I've talked about the study and they've said oh I had a horse who was terrible at dressage and he was great cross-country and I always say to them but did you ever get 70 penalties did you ever get a score that bad and they almost at almost always say, no, no, I never got one that bad. And I've said, well, this wouldn't affect you, then you would continue. This would affect less than 1% of competitors. It's a very small proportion every year. Um, but like we, like I said before, we're not looking to, you know, it would be just unrealistic to think we're going to eliminate horse falls or reduce them hugely because they're already quite rare. It's about even just trying to reduce them by one every year. So if this can do that, and it affects, you know, less than 1% of the whole population of competitors, why wouldn't we do that? That seems reasonable. And it's a, it's a safety element. I mean, if you think of eventing and the rules and regulations around helmets and protection and safety for the horses going through cross country, and like you quite rightly mentioned, the show jumping penalty system, this is just surely another level of safety. Um, because if you're scoring that many penalties then you, what I mean you're not performing movements you're leaving the arena your horse is objecting to the um I can't think of the proper term but you know resisting you etc etc I would want to I wouldn't want to ride a horse around because you never say that to be honest I always but, um, um, yeah I always tell people about a personal experience I've had in eventing where um, I actually um I ended up getting eliminated for, on this horse because I didn't realise I had a, a Martin kill off in the dressage. <laughs> Someone else had tacked up my horse for me while I was tacking up my employer's horse for the same competition and I didn't realise they'd put a Martin gill on. So totally my error, but I went off into the dressage, did my test and finished. And uh, yeah, the horn beeped and the dressage judge came out and said, you're eliminated, you're wearing Martin gill. Um, but I was absolutely devastated when I got my scoring sheet because the horse that I was on was a, a pony that we'd gotten from Ireland and it clearly had some major, maybe mouth trauma or like severe contact issues. It was completely sound and it carried its head fine if you didn't touch its mouth. But the minute you touched its mouth and tried to pick up contact, it would lift its head up and sort of do that, which I've, I've seen in other horses before. So what we said is, right, I'm going to go into the dressage. I'm just going to literally I'm going to have a loose rein and I'm just going to perform the movements at the right pace so I went in there and um 
yeah, I just did the walk, drop the canter in the right place and his head was in the air the whole time. And when I got my scoring sheet, given I had been eliminated, but I did get my scoring sheet, I'd been given 37.5 penalties. And that was perhaps a, a kind judge. Um, <laughs> but I always think back to that when I'm thinking about this whole uh, dressage penalty factor that we're talking about. What needs to go wrong in a dressage test for someone to get seven penalties? And I want, you know, if anyone listens to this, I want anyone to think about that. If, if they have that thought, well, well, my horse is terrible at dressage and it's great cross country. Well, what's the worst score that you've gotten? Because 99% of you will never have gotten a 70. So mm. try and imagine what a test needs to look like to get 70. And to me, in my head, I imagine that that looks like aversive behaviours, you know, rearing, bucking, backing up, leaving the track. And resisting the rider was what I was thinking of. That's the term that they often use, isn't it? You yeah, know, yeah, um... resisting. And like we know those behaviours as aversive behaviours through mm. evidence and scientific study are associated with um, pain and discomfort. So not only have we perhaps got a mentally unhappy animal, we've also perhaps got one that's got a subclinical injury or condition. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, just really, it's worth reiterating that, that this is the absolute worst, you know, proportion. And it mm. really doesn't affect most people who would probably consider that their dressage is terrible. <laughs> and, and, I, and I dare say, even some of the best riders in the country, if they can't uh, get their horse to walk, trot, canter when they're supposed to do a circle, come down the centre line, etc., etc. I can't imagine many of them wanting to take a horse cross country. So oh, it, yeah. it, it's almost a very gentle, um, I don't want to say competency of riding, but it, it, it almost isn't. It's a safety level. It's just to make sure, I guess, that you can do what you need to do. Yeah. And do you want to be, you know, galloping around a cross country course on a horse that? you can't stop or steer or that is you know um displaying aversive behavior is that is that how we want our sport to look that's the other no. question i ask myself is that what mm. we want outsiders to watch and think mm. that is what we accept as a standard so it's not only i feel like it's multifaceted it's not only about risk and safety i think we've also got to consider social license because it has to be in the conversation doesn't it nowadays and is I that agree how we want do we want a video of a you know a 75 penalty dress such test making it online and going viral and that's what people perceive our sport to look like because it's likely that that animal is going to look quite unhappy in its job yeah absolutely i completely i completely agree so you've um obviously followed these three studies and um i imagine you're working on different bits and pieces now what are your sort of hopes and dreams for eventing going forwards are you hoping that it will continue to look to improve safety and uh, encourage the sport in that direction yeah I think my my biggest hope is actually that people's outside of perception of the sport is maintained as positive because right now that's the biggest threat to our sport so what can we do to ensure that? Because without that, we will we will lose it or it will have to change, which is not what we want. So I think it's a combination of, you know, our, I recognise that our work, you know, my work as a scientist now, rather than being directly involved in the sport anymore, is, is to produce this sort of evidence. But our next biggest challenge is, A, how do we communicate that best with the sport, but also the participants so that we can all 
make change together um whilst maintaining the challenge and the you know the the natural um format of the sport but also improving safety and i and i mean that in terms of all of the, the research that's going on not just mine i know of lots of different areas of study um that are being done to benefit um you know horse and rider safety and the sport you know preserve the sport overall um but yeah i think it's really important and you know the a lot of the groups around risk management, for example, in eventing have said this themselves, that it's important that we always strive to make it safer. And we do owe that to the animal. We owe that to the horse. We must always try. Um, I think that's vital. I think that's wonderful. And what um, a lovely place to, to end this podcast. Thank you ever so much for your time today, Heather, and explaining and talking us through your studies. Um, we are hoping to have you on very soon. I think we've got a webinar booked, haven't we? Um, yeah. To have you on to talk us through, and maybe we can look at some of the results in a little bit more um, depth. Um, Heather is booked to do a webinar on the Dr. David Marlin platform on the 2nd of November. So head over to the website to book yourself a spot. Members obviously can watch and interact for free. Um, there is the ability for non-members to buy tickets, but being as it's only eight pounds to join for the whole month, um, it makes it much more cost effective if you all join and then at least they can send you lots of interesting questions, Heather. Yeah, please do. We love we love getting the questions. And I think if we can um, keep this going, I think we'll keep bothering Heather and getting her on to talk to us about lots of different things. I know that you're um, working in your position at the um, university. How are the new entrants into the university finding it and how's the new university coming along? Yeah, great. Thank you. Yes, I'm at the new vet school at UCLan and we've only just taken our first intake this year, vet students. Um, so we're right in the thick of it right now um, and yeah it's great it's I've worked at other academic institutions previously and I, I'm finding this very the format of teaching is very like interactive engaging and very novel which is I guess that's the exciting part of being part of a new vet school is that it's all very innovative and I guess less traditional in some ways um, which is really exciting to be involved in but yes very very busy <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well thank you for finding time for us um appreciate you having on thank you very much thanks very much thanks for having me hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and the Stable Science series. If you want to learn more about this topic and our work, head over to the drdavidmarlin.com website. Our website and community of members discuss a wide breadth of topics and the website houses thousands of articles, webinars, videos and research, all designed to help horse owners, riders, trainers and breeders achieve optimal performance for their much-loved horses. The drdavidmarlin.com site is an independent information resource for all equestrians, a source of unbiased, science-based research. To learn more about what we do and the hot topics under discussion, follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.